Wow, it's great to see you all today. Thanks for being in worship. These are obviously uh, challenging times with the pandemic that not only persists, but seems to be increasing in intensity at this time. There's so many intriguing things going on nationwide and worldwide at this time, but I want you all to know that however you're feeling about all this, we are going to get through this. And I trust me, there's going to be a time on the other end of this pandemic when we will talk, and believe it or not, we will talk in endearing terms about some of the cool things that happened, some of the good things that God did while we went through all of this together. I'm looking forward to those days. I know many of you are as well. But in the meantime, let's continue to persevere uh, during these challenging times. I want to give a shout out to Saratoga with Pastor Isaac Denton officially beginning there today. We are so excited. We're so grateful to God for you, Pastor Isaac. Thank you for your commitment to lead and shepherd that congregation in Saratoga. I want to give a huge shout out to Half Moon and to Latham and, of course, to all of those joining us online. There's a poem that I came across some years ago that I have always found to be very, very poignant and gripping. We don't know who the author is. I wish we did, but it's, it's a fabulous poem. It talks about some of the questions and fears surrounding death. Death is a part of life, they say, and true, it haunts me every day. These feelings of torture that scorch my soul make me feel like I can never be whole. Please, I ask this dark enemy of mine, leave me alone or give me a sign. I cannot turn from this feeling of fear, always so close, always so near. Life is not meant to be lived this way. Feelings of battle, panic, struggle every day. Nor will it leave me alone to rest. It follows and blinds me like a real pest, silently creeping up to my door, patiently waiting to settle the score. Wow, what a poignant and gripping poem that is. And you know, it's the starkest of all statistics, isn't it? One out of every one person's dies. And even though our life expectancy grows steadily, we haven't been able to eliminate death. It stalks us like that poem says, silently creeping up to my door, patiently waiting to settle the score. You know, I, I read an article this week in preparation for this on encyclopedia.com. It's a lengthy article about different views of life after death. And I'm going to read you the summary paragraph from these authors. Regardless of one's religious background, it is in the presence of death that all humans find themselves face-to-face -face with the single greatest mystery of their existence. Does life extend beyond the grave? Whether one believes in a supernatural heavenly kingdom, the inescapable laws of karma, or a state of eternal bliss, death remains a dreadful force beyond one's control. And that article is so true. We try to delay death through proper diet and exercise. We try to camouflage it 
through cosmetics and the oil of delay. I mean, ole, you know? We, we, we try to take pills and vitamins and, and all these things, but death is a flat-out depressing topic to most people. And so we don't even want to use the word. We try to use all these euphemisms like pushing up daisies, resting in peace, bit the dust, food for worms, he's departed, he gave up the ghost, and of course, the most popular He's gone to a better place. Well, whatever we call it, as a culture, we want to avoid death any way we can. And if we can't, we sure want to know what comes next. I love the question Job asked so many centuries ago. He asked, if a man dies, will he live again? What a question. If a person dies, will she or he live again? That's the topic that we're trying to tackle today. Now, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, in a book we call 2 Corinthians, speaks to this reality of life after death. Here's what he says in chapter 5 of that letter. He says, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, think of that, Our body, he says, is like a house. It's like a tent that we're living in for a while. If it's torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now think of that. Paul's comparing our physical bodies to a tent. Now I don't know about you, but when I hear the word tent, immediately three things come to my mind. Number one, it's fragile. Most tents, even when you stake them down properly, they're still pretty fragile. They can be blown away in a storm. Second, I think uncomfortable. I mean, I don't care how many sleeping bags you bring. Bring your own pillow. A tent is a pretty uncomfortable place to live. And then the third word is temporary. Now, I knew a young woman once who actually moved to the state of Maine and believe it or not, just on a, almost a lark, she moved there and literally lived in a tent for several weeks during the summer as she went out looking for a job, trying to get established, and so she didn't have the money to do anything else. She lived in a tent temporarily, okay? But most people don't want to do that very long. I mean, you know how it goes. After two or three days camping Most people are ready for the comforts of home. Well, Paul says, look, our bodies are like that. Our bodies are meant to be temporary. Several months ago, some of you will remember, we did a series of sermons through the book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And you may recall that that is a book about a man who's searching for meaning in life, and he's doing it under the sun, as he says, searching for meaning in all these different ways through his empirical senses, the things he can see and hear and taste and smell and touch. And he found through all of his searching that life is meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. He pursued meaning in every form imaginable. And Solomon, the man in the story, found it all to be quite empty. But there's a little verse in that book, such an 
interesting book. There's a little verse in chapter 3 that I think captures one of his most provocative thoughts in the whole book. He says he has also, speaking of God now, the creator, he says he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. In other words, in spite of all I experience around me, I know there's something bigger than me, something beyond me that gives my life this extra dimension. And I believe, by the way, that that consciousness is in every person. You may not even thought about it, but I believe that every person eventually asks questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is life all about? Where am I going? There's this yearning in all of us that says there's got to be something more than this. The great writer C.S. Lewis speaks to that. If you're looking for a great person to read, you're on a journey of faith, I'd recommend C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford scholar. And in his book called Mere Christianity, very famous book, he writes the following, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire, get this now, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not mean that the universe is a fraud, but that earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, only to arouse it, to suggest and provoke the real thing. Now, I believe that Lewis is on to something very profound right there. And it's been said in a lot of different ways through the centuries. I like the way the one we call St. Augustine said it so many centuries ago. He said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I would just put it to you like this. There's something unquenchable. There's a thirst. There's a hunger in every person that will never be satisfied apart from God himself. Have you ever studied the major religions of the world and how they address this whole question of what's beyond this life? I, I've taken the time to do that. As a, a, a young leader and pretty new Christian, one who really wanted to learn, I thought, I want to know what all the religions have to say. And so for a number of years, in my early years as a Christian, I read book after book on the major religions of the world. I wanted to know what they said. And there's no way we can get into all of that today. But Hinduism, for instance, teaches reincarnation. Their view is that when your life now is over, you will come back in some other form, depending on how karma has shaped that reality for you. And I find it a bit surprising that many Americans are buying into a belief in reincarnation. You'll be listening to a talk show, and the host will be asking the guests some questions, and she will say, oh, yes, through hypnosis, 
I went back and came to realize that in my previous life, I was a great artist and I produced great sculptures or something like that. And people would sit there and listen to that and go, wow, I wonder if that's true. I heard about one husband who had just finished reading an article on reincarnation and he said to his wife, wow, honey, if this reincarnation thing is true, I mean, does that mean that I could come back like a worm? And she said, oh, no, it doesn't work that way. You can never be the same thing twice. Well, many people believe in reincarnation, but the scriptures, the Bible, teach that there's only one go around, only one life. It's appointed unto a person once to die, and after that, the judgment, the writer of Hebrews says. So the old beer commercial, I guess, had it right after all. You only go around once. And in that beer commercial, it said, so therefore, you better grab for all the gusto you can. But I would say to you, since it is true, you only go around once, you better put some serious thought into what happens the moment after I die. Now, there's a question you ought to be asking. And I want you to know there's absolutely no biblical evidence whatsoever for reincarnation, but it is still a very appealing idea to a lot of people. What about Buddhism? Buddhism teaches something quite different. The idea that one life lights the candle of another life, which lights the candle of another life, and another, and another, and you just pass this light on from life to life. And though you physically die... Your life is perpetuated and passes on. This light that you pass down, the one you receive now, you pass on to others, and that gives life a sense of continuity. And then there's the religion of animism. It's not just one religion. There's actually many different types of animism. Some are very primitive. You'll find them in the remote jungles of the world, perhaps. Others are a lot more modern, and and even urban centers have various expressions of animism. So it's not a monolithic belief. But in animism, the idea of life beyond death is quite different. Animism holds ancestors in great respect, and it sees the passing on of life from parent to child to grandchild, to great-grandchild, right on down through the generations, is a continuation of yourself in some form. So in other words, your life is going to continue, but it's not going to be in an ideal state somewhere. It's going to be in your children, if you have children, in your grandchildren, and so forth. So there's great reverence for ancestors, because if you diss your ancestors, you're really dissing yourself. Recently, I watched a Netflix documentary, which was so interesting. You know, I find it amazing that after all these thousands of years, we're still locating tombs in Egypt that have never been discovered. And in this particular discovery that happened just in the last two or three years, it focused on an ancient priestly figure in Egypt known as Wati. And if you've know anything about Egyptian burials, you know they mummified the corpse, 
and it was well-preserved. And then they also put with the deceased person all kinds of clothing and food and utensils and all kinds of usable items that they believed the person would need in the next life. And that's not only true of the Egyptians. It's true of Native Americans and many cave dwellers. They told us something about their belief in the afterlife through how they buried the dead. They believed these things would be useful in the next life. And as far as anthropologists can tell, virtually every culture has had some sort of belief in life after death. And we could go on and on for literally, no joke, hours talking about that. But the question is, who's got it right? The question is, what is true? And what evidence should we trust to base our conclusion on? Well, in answering that question today, can I really believe in life after death? Many Americans have turned to out-of-body testimonies to kind of take the lead. I talked to a woman just the other, just the other evening. We were, Debbie and I and our family were together, and I, I met someone I'd never met before, and we were having a little conversation there with the family, and she told about a book she had read, and I'd read that book long ago. It tells about a sort of out-of-body mystical experience where this woman saw all this light and had all these warm, wonderful feelings and so on and came back to tell about it and write it down. Doctors Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Dr. Raymond Moody were pioneers in this area. They were famous psychologists who interviewed literally thousands of people, thousands, people who had been pronounced clinically dead but then were revived or resuscitated. Some of their stories are compelling. Thousands of them interviewed. And what I find interesting is that there's a lot of commonality. Many of them talked about floating away from their body and being drawn toward a particular light. And many of them talked about peace and joy and light. In contrast, some of them had a horrifying experience. They talked about darkness and fear and something that was horrible that just scared them. Dr. Raymond Moody talked about one woman who, after cardiac arrest, said she felt herself floating away from her body, and she saw the doctors down here and the medical staff pumping on her chest, performing CPR, trying to get her breathing again, and she said, She was literally saying, leave me alone, leave me alone. She didn't want to come back to this miserable existence because she was already beginning to feel these great feelings of peace and tranquility. One doctor told about a man who attended his clinic. The man was ultimately pronounced dead. Then, a few minutes later, resuscitated. True story, the man sued the doctor for resuscitating him. How dare you bring me back to this miserable experience? (coughs) The stories are endless. I mean, one man was blind in this life, but in this out-of-body experience, he could see, and he could see everything that was happening in the room, and later when he came back to life again, he was blind again, but he reported 
accurately to the medical staff exactly what had happened and who had come and gone out of the room. A dear friend of ours, Mary Benedetto, Fred and Mary Benedetto have been a part of this church for many years. They now live in South Carolina. And I got Mary's permission to share this story that she sent me about her mother, Clara, who had a deep and profound faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to read it exactly the way Mary wrote it. My mom was such a dear lady in many ways and was also a deep a person of deep faith. Under hospice care at age 90, her remaining days were few. I sat beside her every day as she rested peacefully with her eyes closed. One day, she suddenly called out, Mom, as though she could see her mother. A few minutes later, she called out, Ralph. It was as if she could see my grandmother and my dad beckoning her to join them. The next day, one of her caregivers called me aside and said, is your mom, Miss Clara, as the staff called her, is Miss Clara religious? The question took me by surprise, but I answered that she was. The caregiver told me that morning, my mom, who was very much out of it at that point, and basically could not move on her own, my mom had sat straight up in her hospital-style bed, lifted her arms to the sky, and said, Praise God! Praise God! I'm ready, Jesus! This caregiver was stunned and, frankly, unnerved. Mom had been motionless for days and then did what seemed to be physically impossible. And then Mary finishes this story by saying, my hope is that in my final days and hours, I'm exactly like mom, seeing loved ones welcoming me into the next realm and having the reassurance that there is more ahead. I hope that I reach up to Jesus and tell him that I am ready to come home. Now, what do you make of those stories? Some might just dismiss them outright. Others might say, well, maybe God is giving us some additional uh, light in a time of skepticism, that there is indeed life beyond this body. Well, that is exactly what the Bible teaches, that life down here is not all there is. Paul goes on in that very same Bible passage and says in verse 4, for indeed, while we are in this tent, the body we live in, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You say, no, wait a minute, Paul, are you just practicing positive thinking here? Are, are, are 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 you just trying to be optimistic? How can you know? Man, buddy, nobody knows what lies beyond the grave. Well, I think Paul, if he were standing here right now, would say, time out. Really? This question you're asking today, guys, I mean, come on. I, I appreciate the pastor bringing all these interesting stories and stuff, but I hope you understand we've already got an answer to this. 
I think if the Apostle Paul were standing here right now, he would say, look, the fact that Jesus died and experienced life after death and then came back to tell us about it, folks, I hope you know, that was a game changer. I think the Apostle would say, look, if you're trying to answer this question, can I really believe in life after death? Speculation's been taken out of it long ago. And if we say, well, come on, Paul, how can you be so confident? He would say, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Now, take note of that. He says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a precedent. He often uses the word first fruits of the resurrection of all the believers who are in Christ and true followers of Christ. To put it succinctly, Paul would say, look, the reality of our future resurrection is based on the historicity of Christ's resurrection. Oh, there's so many places this is taught. But let me just give you a couple more. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. Paul puts it like this there. These, these words are so clear. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits. There's that word again. First fruits. Any farmer knows what that means. First fruits is the first of many more to come, like it. That's what the first fruits were. Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, here it is again, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. In short, Christ's resurrection becomes the guarantee of ours. That's why the resurrection of Jesus is such a central teaching and belief. It is not a conviction. It is not a preference. It's not some little side issue. Without it, you no longer have anything to base your confidence on. Now, I don't want to beat this to death today. Let me give you one other verse, which is so good. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, says Paul, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Christ has not been raised. Rex Keener, go get a real job. If Christ has not been raised, you people here are wasting your time, for goodness sakes. Get a life. If Christ has not been raised, then confident belief in life after death has no adequate foundation. And if Christ has not been raised, I'll grant you Christianity may have some nice moral teachings but it has no power to transform your life. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for it all. Now, last week, I made what I believe is a pretty radical statement. hope some of you kind of noted it. I said that I believe 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, is the most important passage on resurrection in all the Bible. I hope few of you at least took a mental note of that. I really, st- I believe that. Let's look at it quickly once again. Oh, it's so pivotal. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That's an impressive list of people who saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. And this was written only 20 years approximately after it happened. Paul's going, look, don't believe me. Go knock on their door. Say, pardon me, excuse me, please. But I just want to know, did you see Jesus alive? They'll be glad to tell you what they saw and heard with their own eyes, with their own ears. So hear me today. It's the repeated testimony throughout Scripture that Jesus Christ was raised, and that is a game changer. Acts 2.24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. So let me say it again. The future of our resurrection, our future resurrection is based on the historicity of Christ's resurrection. And that fact allowed Paul to literally stare death in the face and mock death. Have you read this before? 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Think, think of the audacity of that man. I mean, death is the great leveler, is it not? Paul is mocking it. Where do you get that kind of gumption? Now, as a pastor, I've watched a lot of people who, through some terminal illness, their bodies wasted away. It's really sobering, isn't it? You've watched it. People who were once healthy, vibrant, strong, energetic, to watch them gradually deteriorate into a shell of the person they used to be. Speech falters, steps turn to shuffles, the light goes from the eyes, the body is failing until one day the lungs cease to breathe, the heart stops beating. We call that death. Imagine. Imagine the audacity of a man, the Apostle Paul, who can look death in the eyeballs and proclaim, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? How can he do that? Because as a Christ follower, that person is simply going to transition from a fragile temporary tent to a glorious house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And that truth, that truth changes your perspective, not only on this life, but on the life to come. So I say to you today, until you're ready to die, you're not really ready to live. Now why? Why, Pastor Rex, do you make such a statement? Here's why I say that. Because always lurking in the background of your life is going to be that 
fear of death that the writer in that poem talked about. You remember it? Death is part of life, they say. True, it haunts me every day. Silently creeping up to the door, patiently waiting to settle the score. And it's always going to be there lurking. And you're always going to have that impending, ominous fear of death. But when you know you're ready to die, woo, woo, then you are truly free to live. So let me put it to you this way in closing. One of these days, if Jesus Christ doesn't return in the meantime, and if, if I die before you, one of these days you're going to hear that old Rex Keener has died. You say, Rex, are you afraid? I am absolutely not afraid. Not because I'm some tough guy. Not because I've got more courage than most. No, no, no. I'm not afraid to die for one reason. The one who raised Jesus from the dead is going to raise me because I'm in Jesus. Just insert your own name. This isn't just for me. It's for you because the reality of our future resurrection is based on the historicity of Christ's resurrection. That certainty that Christ was raised from the dead is the guarantee, says Paul. It's the down payment that guarantees our own resurrection. You say, Pastor, how can I be ready for that? That's the greatest question we could ask. Because when you're in Christ, you can literally stare death in the face and go, you got nothing on me, death. I don't have to walk around and live my life being afraid of you. You got nothing, man. You got no game whatsoever, death. You can say that with confidence when you're in Christ. You say, how do I get in Christ? You come humbly to him at the foot of the cross. You say, Jesus, I have no power in myself to conquer sin to conquer death, hell, and the grave. But I trust in you and your death and resurrection. I trust in the atoning sacrifice you made for me to pay the penalty that my sins deserve. And I yield my life fully and completely to you. I trust in you for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That gives you the confidence. And you can do that this very day. When you are ready to die, woo, look out life, then you're really ready to live. So Father, I pray today for all of those who feel stalked by death. It silently is lurking at their door, patiently waiting to settle the score, and they think about it so often. God, I pray that in Jesus, they would find the confident assurance to stare death in the face and go, you got nothing on me. Because they know that their life is in Christ and the one who raised Christ will raise them also. So may this be the moment. God, the Holy Spirit, would you draw people right now? Only you can do that. Only you can draw them to salvation. I pray that you would regenerate hearts, that you would adopt people into your family, forgive them of sin, 
as they right now in this very moment place faith in you. Hallelujah. Seal them, save them, God. May they be ready to die and ready to live in Jesus' name. Amen.